Take your Bibles tonight and go to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. We'll be in Matthew 22 tonight. We're going to look tonight at an interaction, an encounter that Jesus has um, with some of his opponents, and he talks about a question of obligation. We're in Matthew chapter 22. We'll be in verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us them, what do you think, what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Father, we thank you for bringing us to the house, your house tonight for the wonderful truth we have expressed in song that we can rest and trust in you and you alone. And as we open the word of God tonight to consider what it is you would have to teach us, we pray that you would quiet our hearts and open our minds May we be receptive to the word of God. May you show us uh, that you, as God, are owed all things uh, in our lives, that you have uh, ordained the experiences that we go through. You have, in your sovereignty, put um, people in places you would have them to be, and therefore uh, we can rest in and trust in you and you alone. Help us tonight to... uh, Again, be convicted of the next spiritual step we need to take that we may live lives to the glory of God. In your name we pray, amen. There are certain truths and facts in life uh, that inform our life choices and they require a certain response of us. The greatest of these facts and truths that require a response and inform our life choices is this. Jesus is the Son of God and God incarnate. His identity as God the Son stirred up no little controversy amongst people in his day. We've looked at this in our study of John and seen how because because of who Jesus is, he's had all sorts of interactions with the religious leaders and others of his day. As Jesus preached the gospel of himself, bringing hope to all who trust in him, we see the opposition he continually faced. However, the truth of who Jesus is cannot be denied, even though the people who who opposed him tried to deny it. It can't be, and, and it has great implications on all of our lives. And tonight, in this little interaction that happens between Jesus and those who come to talk to him, we see this instance of contention And we're called here to obedience to the will of God in our lives because of the authority that Jesus has over all things. And what we see here is Jesus' identity as God 
requires us to submit ourselves to him in all things. Thus, godly living that begins in our hearts is manifested in our lives. Because Jesus is who he says he is. This is what is true. We're going to read here tonight and see. Because Jesus is God. Because God is the owner of all things. Thus Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. He has owed everything in our lives. And that begins in our hearts. It begins with, I mean, we, we do have to affirm that with, in what we believe. But it, it doesn't stop there. It works itself out in the way we live our lives, in the way we prioritize our lives, and the, and the choices that we make. And so let's jump in here tonight and see uh, briefly here what is it that, that goes on in the life of Jesus that, that stirs up this, this discussion and points us to this fact. You see in verses 15 into the first part of verse 16, uh, there's a plan that's hatched by some people who oppose Jesus. And we see in verse 15 the intent that's behind this. It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his word. So for three years, for the three years of Jesus' ministry, the religious hierarchy of Israel has opposed and targeted him. And here in Matthew 22, we see this is going on again. Now this is following the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is during the Passion Week leading up to his arrest and his crucifixion. This is probably around Tuesday or Wednesday that we would know of those days of that week. And Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of the week to this joyful crowd who declared him the Messiah, who believed he had come to rule and reign. Jesus then, he, clen- he cleansed the temple yet again, establishing the truth of what the temple is to be, a place of worship, standing up for what is right according to the law of God and the truth of God. The Pharisees have abused God's law. They've used it to their own ends. We were talking about this Wednesday night as we looked at Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments and the people's reaction to God's presence there on the mountain. And they were afraid of God because of his holiness. And I said, it's it's fascinating that you fast forward hundreds of years later to the time of Jesus, and then all of a sudden people aren't afraid of the law of God anymore. They're using it and twisting it for their own ends and means. Instead Instead of realizing how sinful they were, they were using it to prop themselves up. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They're added to the law, burdening people with its demands and making themselves out to be some picture of righteousness. And throughout his ministry, Jesus has exposed them for who they are, self-righteous hypocrites. He has sought to show them and everyone who will listen to him the truth of himself, the Lamb of God. As Jesus said, he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. He came to give all of those who would come to him life in himself. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to oppose sin. And if you hadn't already figured it out from what you've read here and other places, the Pharisees don't really like that. Right? They don't like what Jesus stands for and who he is. They, they deny that he is the son of God. And so they have constantly plotted against Jesus. They believed, truly believed, they could ensnare him in his words with their tricks. And so here in this passage, we see this is true again. Jesus has been teaching in Jerusalem. He's once again been challenging their authority and their motives, talking even in parables. 
And so now we see that they're plotting again how to entangle him in these words. And so when we see in verse 16 the inquisitors that they're going to send. It says, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees have plotted on how to trap Jesus, and now they're going to send, they're not even going to go to themselves. Did you catch that? They're sending their representatives. They're sending their disciples, the people who learned at their feet. It's an interesting thing. You know, you wonder, perhaps they, uh, they thought, well, you know, he'll know who we are, so we'll send these people, right? Which, by the way, if Jesus is God, and he is, that doesn't work, right? And we see that they have also here another group. We see this group that's called the Herodians. Now, we don't know everything about this group, but we do know this. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they don't normally get along. So the Pharisees, uh, they uphold the law of God. They're very opposed to the Roman government, right, and, and what the Roman government stands for. The Herodians, do you catch that? There's a, the name Herod is part of their name. Thus, uh, they, these are people who are actually in favor of the Roman government and the things that are going on there. And so what you see here is that Jesus is a common, a common enemy to these two groups. And so they're going to team up here. Luke's account of this incident communicates the intentions behind this. Luke says in 20, uh, Luke 20, 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. <coughs> These guys have nothing but malicious intentions when it comes to Jesus. The plan's very simple. They count, if they send their disciples, the Pharisees send their disciples and the Herodians, Jesus is going to speak in opposition. They're going to ask this question, and Jesus is going to come out against either them or the Herodians. So it's either going to be against the religious authorities or the government. Either way, they plan to make him an unignorable enemy of someone, thus leading to action being taken against him. So now we come to the, the test, the question that's pushed forward. In the first, second part of verse 16, into verse 17, you see the question. And it's a question that is flooded with flattery. In verse 16, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, it is not uncommon for teachers, okay, rabbis, these people who, who would instruct others in these ways, to be asked questions in Jesus' day. Jesus fielded many such questions from his own disciples and from others. And so here, a question is posed looking for his teaching on it. But we know the intentions behind the question already. We've already been, those have already been laid bare for us to, to see. So therefore, we have no problem seeing through, as we read this, the evilness and the maliciousness that's behind the questions being asked. And it's interesting here. These that are asking the question preface it with all sorts of amazing statements. Right? I want you to look at this verse, and we'll, I'm going to just reframe all of them in, in, one, in four different things they say. Right? We know that you are true. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully. We know that you do not care about anyone's opinion. We know that you are not swayed by appearances. Now, I want you to look at that and understand, right? 
How many of those statements are true about Jesus? Every single one of those statements is true, right? Jesus is true. He's the very definition of truth as God. Therefore, he teaches the ways of God truthfully. In fact, Jesus is the only authority on the things of God, for he is God himself. Anyone teaching anything that, that, is, that goes against what Jesus says is a liar. It was true then and it's true now. Jesus doesn't care about opinions, right? He speaks what is right and what is true. Because, again, truth doesn't care how you feel or if you think it's right. That's the nature of truth. And Jesus is not swayed by appearance. It makes no difference if you're rich or poor, learned or ignorant, man or woman, or any other delineation mankind might attempt to make. There is no one who can fool the Lord or curry favor with him. The only thing that will bring you to Jesus is you must only believe in him and what he says. So all of these are true statements. However, those who are saying them don't believe them. You can say all the right things in the world, but if you don't believe what you say, it doesn't mean anything. They wish only to pile up right words. They want to bait the trap, so to speak. They want to look good to the people who are around them. But Jesus is not fooled because you can't manipulate God. You can stack false praise and adoration all you want, but your heart motives are always known to the Lord. And so now they pose the question. It's a question that's couched in culture in verse 17. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is, a, this is the real winner right here, okay? This is the question. This is the one that's going to score points and make Jesus look bad. Is it right for God's people to pay taxes to the pagan overlords of the land? Is it in line with God's law for Caesar to receive funds from God's people? If Jesus answers yes, then in their view, right, he's going to be siding with the Romans and he's against Israel and thus blasphemous to God. He's violating the law of God. If he says no, he's going to be at odds with the Roman Empire, the occupying force of Israel in this day. He would be an enemy of the state and of the Herodians who promoted the ways of the Roman Empire and would be, who would then be his enemies as well. So, again, let's back up to the main antagonists here, the Pharisees. This is a win-win, right? One way or the other. It's like, you know, because we're talking about taxes and and those sorts of things, like flipping a coin and, you know, it's not going to land on the edge, right? It's going to go one way or the other. Someone will have a treasonous charge to bring against Jesus on this day in their minds. This is ultimately a win for them and the nation of Israel. Now, it should be noted that in general, the people are opposed to the Roman occupation. That's the general feeling, right? It was a very oppressed, even though the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace was there, it was still a time people, they, they chafed under that. This was a time, again, of strong nationalistic feelings. As we looked at this in, in the book of John, we were reminded of this as it's the time of the Passover, And we understand that those who worked for the Romans who collected said taxes, who were Jews, 
were seen as traitors to their country. And so here again, once again, we see Jesus going after, though, the heart of his people in verses 18 through 22. We see really the right response that is given. And it starts with identifying the true object of the discussion. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Here's the true object that Jesus is trying to get to. He's going to address the question, but he's first going to go after the heart and the motivation of the people who asked him. Because he is God, he is never caught off off guard or manipulated. Instead, he sees through what these people are trying to do. He is aware of their malice, their wicked intentions regarding him, so therefore he seeks the conviction of their hearts with this question. Why do they put him to the test? By testing Jesus, they are testing God. Well, if that sounds like something you shouldn't do, that's in Scripture. Shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? So what does Jesus say? Well, you're all hypocrites. A whole lot of them, right? They're just hypocrites. They do not truly want an answer from him. They want to further their own agendas. The true object of this discussion is their own sinful hearts and motives. They are not sincere in their questions. They are not sincere in their service to the things of God. They're not interested in defending the things of God from error. They're interested in protecting their own little kingdoms. That's what they're interested in. But in answer to their question, Jesus is going to show them the real obligation they do have. So we see the lesson that's taught in verses 19 through 21. He says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. So Jesus asked for a coin that was to be given in tax. This is most likely the tax being referred to here as the poll tax. And that has to do with an accounting of the people, like kind of what you read about when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem to be, to, to be part of the, um, the census. Thank you. And so the coin that was given is a denarius. And a denarius, a Roman denarius, is the typical day's wage for a laborer in that day. You worked all day, this is what you got paid. So Jesus points them to this coin And he asked him this one simple question. Who is on the coin? Now under Roman occupation, who's on the coin is Caesar. The inscription, right? There would be inscriptions about the Caesar that were on the coins. And and, and all of these guys who became Caesar, they had different coins minted. And they would say different things. So this coin, minted by the Roman government has on it the likeness of Caesar and inscriptions pertaining to Caesar. And this fact is key to the obligation then that Jesus says followers of God have. And so at the end of the the, the passage here, he, he unfolds the obligation. They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, okay, because this is whose this likeness is on it, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So Jesus says the coin that bears Caesar's image comes with an obligation to Caesar. 
They are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, that word render there is an interesting word. It, it means give back something that is due. He's saying, you need to give back to Caesar that which, which is due to him. He gave you that, right? He minted the coins. He says there's tax. You're obligated to follow it and give it back. He's the head of the governing body that made the coins, so like it or not, that's who's in charge during that day. The taxes he imposed were paid with the money that he provided. But the answer didn't stop there. Because while Caesar may be owed some monetary obligation, Jesus says God is also owed some things. Caesar should receive the things that are his, and God should also receive the things that are his. And Jesus connects these thoughts with the word render. He says, render the things, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And you can read it this way, and render to God the things that are God's. And what does that word mean? Give back what you owe. So give back what, you, what, is, what is owed, what is, what is expected to Caesar, and give back to God what is expected. Just as Caesar minted the money, God had given things to his people and thus was owed something in return. And so the question is, what is God owed? Is it only certain spiritual things in our lives? Absolutely not. God is the owner of all things. So therefore, what is he owed? He's owed everything. Jesus has thus answered their question in a way in which only God can. He answered a sociological conundrum while at the same time calling on their utmost spiritual obedience. And so what happens at the end of, of verse 22, or at the end of this, the, or right there in verse 22, they marvel, they're speechless, they don't know what to say. I gave you the image earlier of the coin, you know. It's like the coin flipped and landed on the edge. Like, well, what do we do now, Right? They didn't score a victory. They walk away defeated, convicted in their hearts. And so that leaves us to ponder the ramifications. What do we owe? In, in 2024, what does this mean? We're not Israelites bound by all of the laws of the old covenant. Yet we find ourselves in a similar situation. We are under the rule of government. Local, federal, state, whatever, right? And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Is our government riddled with dishonest, God-hating people? Well, yeah. Because our world in general is loaded with those people, right? That's, and by the way, God promised us that's the way it was going to be. At the same time, and let me back up, I guess. Was the Roman government riddled with God-hating people? Well, yeah. You should, you know, I, I didn't write all of them down but to read some of the things that, that have been found about the Caesars would say about themselves, about being God and being this and being that. Same things, right? Sounds kind of similar. At the same time, then, we understand that government is a God-ordained institution. And we can rest assured that no one is in power outside of God's sovereign control. Therefore, we have an obligation to our government. That as long as we are not called to do that which contradicts and disobeys God, 
We're to obey those who have the rule over us. And our, brain, our minds always fill with what ifs, right? What if the government requires us to disobey God? What if they threaten our lives for not acquiescing to sin? What if they strip away our freedoms as churches and Christians? Then I would say this, you should be prepared to do what is necessary for the cause of Christ. Read the book of Daniel. And we like to get all knotted up in our politics and freedoms in our first world Christian minds. At the same time, we must remember the basic command of Jesus here. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. All the while, okay, sometimes we get all bunched up in that, and we forget the second part. Render to God the things that are God's. In short, we owe God everything. Think about it this way. The coin that Jesus held up had on it the likeness of Caesar. You, as a human being, have the likeness and bear the image of God. He created us. He sustains us. If you know him as Savior, he's redeemed you. He empowers you. So our lives should be lived in worship of our Savior. We may not all be called to die for the cause of Christ, but every Christian is called to live for the cause of Christ. Our time, our money, our talents, our work, our entertainment, our relationships, everything should bring glory to God. And here is, again, where our first world freedom-loving minds sometimes gets in the way. You see, you and I don't get to, to pick and choose from our stockpile of things. Okay, God can have this, but, I can ha- but I'm going to keep this. We don't get to do that. We don't get to say, well, well God, you can get this part of my life, but, but you know, I really like this part, and so therefore I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to think about honoring you. I'm just going to just go ahead and do it. We think, well, that's my right. That's my freedom. But what does God say? Give to God the things that are God's. When we give to him, we are not giving, uh, you know, whether it be monetarily or the other things we've talked about, we're not giving out of, well, okay, this is my little abundance. I'm going to give to God. We're returning to him that which he's given to us. We had this conversation recently in our house. Um, Our kids have allowances they get. And we had this, this conversation about, about money and what do you give to God? And the, this discussion is what we had, you know? That, that, that the question isn't how much of my money am I going to give to God, but the question becomes how much of, my, of God's money am I going to keep for myself, right? And we can ask that about anything in our lives. Not how much of this am I going to give to God, but how much of this am I going to keep and use here? God is the ultimate giver. And so thus we owe him everything. Begins in our personal lives and it grows out from there into our corporate body as a church. Jesus' identity as God requires us to submit ourselves to him in all things. Thus, godly living that begins in our hearts is manifested in our lives. Jesus as God is the creator of all. The scriptures tell us that he made all things and by him all things hold together. 
He is sovereign. He is in control. He is Lord. Therefore, we owe him everything. The social aspects of our lives that we experience are likewise under his control. God has established government, and as such, we have an obligation to honor those placed in authority over us. While we may owe our leaders obedience and honor and things that do not require us to compromise the truth of God's word, we owe God so much more. We owe him our lives, right? So we can't box up any part of our lives and attempt to squirrel it away from God's control. Nothing in life is greater than knowing Jesus Christ. No calling in life is higher than living for his glory. So the question becomes, what is it in our lives that we're unwilling to relinquish? We just kind of do this, right? Just hold on, we hold on, and we hold on. What is it we continue to hold on to, acting like, well, this is really going to fulfill me? God commands and is worthy of all that we have and all that we are. So let us know the joy of living for him and him alone. The question of obligation is answered with this. We obey God and what he's told us to obey, but we, uh, it, as it pertains to the government, right, specifically it's mentioned here. But the bigger point is this. Godly living that begins in our hearts is manifested in our lives. And we give every part of our lives to the service of the kingdom of God. Father, thank you for the day you've given us to be in your house. Thank you for the word of God that challenges our hearts and convicts our lives. And Lord, we ask that tonight you would do just that. You would take these simple truths, drive them deep in our hearts, and convict us of our sin. Lord, we want to be a church that glorifies God. We want to be a people that glorifies God. We want to see an impact made in our world for the glory of God. We pray that you would revive our hearts, that you would help us to lay everything at your feet, that we would find true joy and fulfillment, and you would be lifted up. We pray now on the rest of this evening that everything we be done to your honor and your glory, in your name we pray.